Well, if you do not know me, my name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. It is so good to be with you all. I want to begin this morning with a question, a question for you all to consider. And the question is this, have you ever had a moment where you felt like you did not fit in? Take a moment, think in your mind, when was a moment in your life where you felt like you did not fit in? This is something that I think all of us have experienced. I know that I have experienced it multiple times. One time specifically that I remember is that the the previous church that I worked at, I was serving at a church in Mountain Brook, uh, just outside of Birmingham, Alabama, and the church had a men's breakfast that met once a month for Bible study, obviously for breakfast. They would eat breakfast and then study the Bible together and fellowship together. And I was really looking forward to this. I was the new youth ministry intern. I was excited. I had been to a few men's breakfasts at other church, so I assumed that it was casual. And so I got up early for breakfast. I threw on a pair of shorts that I believe had pineapples on them, if I'm remembering correctly, and a t-shirt. And I I went up to the church with my Bible. I walked into the fellowship hall, and I stopped dead in my tracks. Because in the room... Every single man, about 50 men, was dressed to impress. Let me put it this way. If they were not wearing a tie and a coat, they at least had dressy shoes, pants, all like dressed all the way. Their hair was like fancy. These were all men who had business meetings to go to or they were going to the hospital for, for, uh, to, be doc- to do doc- doctor stuff. Um, I walked into the room and I immediately felt so conspicuous. Here's the new youth intern wearing chacos and a t-shirt among all these men, and they were nice about it. They, they, they made fun of me a little bit, but I think, but it was, it was fine. Um, but I remember feeling so conspicuous, and I just, I wanted nothing more than to just hide and shrink into the corner. Um, I just, I didn't even want the breakfast. Um, but we all have moments like that in our life. We have those moments where we feel like we don't really fit in, or like we feel like we're standing out too much. And those moments can be hard. And here's a follow-up question. Have you ever felt like that because of your faith? Have you ever felt like you're sticking out in a way that you don't like or that you do not fit in because of your faith? If so, then you have something in common with the audience of today's scripture. Just a real quick review. Brent kicked off our summer summer sermon series last Sunday with a great sermon. I encourage you to go listen to it if you have not. The sermon series is called Exiles in Hope. Peter is writing to Christians who have been persecuted, and because they've been persecuted, they have been spread out over all these cities in the, the empire of Rome, and they are being persecuted because they are a minority among a pagan culture. Uh, they are living in a culture that is very non-Christian and even anti-Christian. So they are struggling, and Peter is writing to them because he knows that they need to know how to navigate the culture of that day. They need to know how to be Christians in a non-Christian culture. And this letter is extremely important for us because we, though we are not in an exactly similar situation, we are in a similar situation in that we are living in a culture that is progressively becoming non-Christian. There's a lot of studies out there that you can look at. One recent one, I'll give you one. One recent study done by the Pew Research Center showed that In 2018 and 2019, 65% of adults identified themselves as Christians. Now, that's not specifying if they're attending church, if they're 
you know, doing anything with that claim. But 65% of adults identified as Christians. And now we might hear that and think, oh, well, that's a good number. 65%, that's the majority, Sam. Well, it's a good number until you see that 10 years ago, this same study revealed that, or 10 years ago, 77% of adults said that they were Christians. So the number has actually dropped 12% in a decade. And at the same time, the number of what the study called unaffiliated adults, so atheists, agnostics, people who don't claim a religion or any belief, has increased to 20, 26%, an increase of 9% since 2009. So in our culture, there is a slow, progressive direction toward non-Christians, towards our culture becoming a non-Christian culture. While, Christian, while the number of Christians is going down, the number of non-Christians is going up. Now, will this trend continue? We don't know, but here's what it does mean for us. We need to know how to be Christians in a non-Christian culture. It will come up. Maybe in our small town of Batesville, we will not see it as much, but we will see it in movies. We will see it in the culture. We will see it on social media. So we need to know how to navigate this culture. We need to know, as Peter says, how to be exiles in a foreign culture that is non-Christian. Exile is the term that he gives to us. We are exiles in an increasingly non-Christian culture. Now, here's the good news. Because we hear that we are exiles, and immediately we start almost panicking. We think, oh, I don't know. If, I don't, I don't want to be an exile. Uh. But Peter knows what we need. Peter knows what we need to do this. He knows that we need hope. Church, if we are exiles, if we are living among people who think differently than we do, who maybe don't like some of the things that we think or believe or value as Christians, we need one thing, that is hope. Now, what is hope? Hope is not a foreign concept to us. It appears in our culture. I was watching Star Wars last week, and you know, Star Wars, the very first movie of the Star Wars saga is what? A New Hope. And the series is all about the hope that the rebels have of defeating the Empire and the Sith. And it's the hope they're, they're wishing to, they're hoping to overcome the, the evil Empire in Star Wars. Uh, so it's in culture. Hope is also something that we have in our personal lives. Uh, we hope to get a good job. We hope that our kids are making wise decisions. We hope to find a spouse. We hope uh, for many things. Uh, in our society, we hope. We hope that this, a solution to this virus will be found. That is something we are constantly hoping for right now. I know that I am. We hope that things like racism and inequality will end. And that's a big issue right now. And so people are hoping for that to happen. Now, the common theme in all of what I just said is that hope is kind of this wishful thinking in our culture. We're hoping that something happens. It's this, or maybe it's optimism. We're, 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 this is going to happen. I just know it. But there's no assurance that it will. Christian hope is different. Christian hope is so much more than wishful thinking or optimism. Chris Castaldo, who is a writer for the Gospel Coalition, he says this. He says, hope is the expectation of God's blessing. It is the anticipation of divine grace that is to come, a grace that is rooted in the certain promises of God. Hope is looking forward to what God has promised us, the things that are sure. Hope is looking toward those things that we know are going to happen. Not that we are hoping will happen, as our culture might say, 
These are the things that we know are going to happen. And hope, Christian hope, is clinging to those things. It's clinging to the promise of heaven. Clinging to the promise of our resurrection. It is clinging to the future and finding strength. This is what we need as exiles. We need hope. To just to illustrate this a little bit further, uh, the difference between our, how our culture thinks of hope and how Christianity thinks of hope is like this. I can stand here and I can hope that my wife will bring, just walk in and bring me coffee. Um, it was funny because during first service, she actually walked in right as I said that. But I can hope that she's going to do that. I can wish that she would do that. And that's kind of how our culture would think of as hope. Uh, I hope that she's going to do it, but it doesn't mean that she's going to do it. Christian hope, though, is, would be like this. My wife has told me that she's going to bring me coffee at some point, and so I can look forward to that, especially when I'm tired, and I can gain strength and excitement by looking ahead to the future because I know it is coming. That is Christian hope. We know what is coming. We know what is coming. And so Peter, in our passage this morning, wants us to know what is coming. He wants us to know what our hope is, and he wants us to cling to it. And for this reason, he begins his letter with a shout of praise. Verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in short, Peter's saying, look, by God's mercy, praise him for it, we have been born Again, And if you're unfamiliar with that phrase, born again, Peter's talking about salvation. He's saying we who were dead in sin, we, were who, we who had sin that needed to be dealt with, our sin has been forgiven. We are a new people now. Our sin has been atoned for. God has given us himself. We are a new creation. We have been born again, and God has graciously done this through his son, Jesus Christ. So praise him for that. But then Peter says that part of this, we are born again to a living hope. As part of our new life, our new faith, our, our salvation, it is this living hope that we have. And living hope may seem like a confusing phrase. What does Peter mean? Well, we must remember that Peter has seen a piece of heaven. Peter was one of the disciples who saw Jesus risen from the grave. Peter saw his resurrected body. He saw the hope that we look forward to of resurrection and of heaven and being with God. He saw a picture of it. And so our, he's, he, what he's saying is, look, our hope is living. Jesus rose from the grave. It is living, and we are going to rise too. We are going to live like Jesus lived as well. And this is, he, and this is, the, this is the reality that we experience spiritually right now. Jesus comes into our life and he gives us new life spiritually. He frees us from sin so that we can follow him. But then we are also awaiting this in our life. We are awaiting the day when Jesus comes back and frees this world from bondage and restores his kingdom and fully eradicates sin and evil and restores good. This is what is to come. This is our hope. This is the promise that we cling to, our living hope that we've seen in Jesus. And so what this all means for us this morning is this. We are hope-filled exiles. We are hope-filled exiles. When you think of an exile, I don't know what you think of. Imagine an exile in your mind, and you might think of someone who is wandering. 
someone who is hopeless. They've been exiled from their country, and they're wandering kind of hopeless. We are not that kind of exile. We are hope-filled exiles. We are hope-filled, beloved children of God. And this means three things for us this morning. Brent's not preaching, but I always have the three points. Number one, this means three things for us. Number one, we have a heavenly inheritance. In verse 4, Peter continues from verse 3, and he says, We have been born again, skip to verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Part of our, a big part of our hope is our inheritance that will come, that is waiting for us in the future. And here's the thing about this inheritance. God has given us an inheritance greater than anything we could ever imagine. I don't know about you, sometimes I imagine like that I have a relative I don't know about who lives in another country who I'm secretly in the will of, and I imagine receiving this giant inheritance, and it's like, oh, wow, this is awesome. Jesus says, the inher- Peter says, the inheritance that God has planned for us is greater than anything we can imagine. Peter uses the words imperishable, undefiled, and unfading to describe it. There is nothing in our world that you can apply all three of those words to. Food perishes, memories fade, money and wealth disappear. Even the mountains, the very foundations of this earth that we live on change and disappear as rain and wind erodes them. Yet our inheritance does not fade, it does not perish, it is there, it is sure. God has given us an inheritance, and it is waiting for us. But God has not just given it to us. God is keeping our inheritance for us. Peter says this in verse 4. He says, God, or he says that our inheritance is being kept in heaven for us. God is holding our place for us in eternity. He has saved us. He will bring us to it. He will not let us fall away. Thomas Aquinas, the Italian philosopher and theologian, he said this. He said, Faith has to do with things that are not seen and hope with things that are not in hand. Part of hope is that we can't grasp this inheritance yet. It's not in our hands. It's not like the bank has put a check and said, here's your inheritance. We can't grasp it yet, but that's what hope is. We are looking ahead to what one day we will grasp. God is keeping our inheritance for us. So when we think of an exile today, the image that comes to our mind is probably negative. We imagine, we might imagine a man or woman who's been cast out of their home. They've been banished from everything they know and everyone they know. They're living in a nation or a place that no one knows them. We might imagine a person who has lost their inheritance, literally lost everything. We are not that kind of exile. We are hope-filled exiles heading to our inheritance. We have gained an inheritance. We are not banished from our home. The question I asked at the beginning was, have you, has your faith ever made you feel like you didn't belong? Our faith will do that sometimes. We've all experienced this. We begin to follow Jesus, and we realize that some following Jesus doesn't line up with the way the world works or the way culture says, the things that culture says to do. And so it can feel like the Lord, Jesus has given us this new life, and it feels like this world isn't our home anymore. Our new identity in Christ has lifted us out of this world a bit, but it has not left us homeless. Our home, our inheritance in eternity is awaiting us at the end of this life. 
We are on a journey to our home. Now, what does this mean? It means that we can live in this world without being attached to this world. Brent touched on this a little bit last week. It means that we can live in this world and be involved in this world, but if things do not go our way as Christians, we do not have to fear. We do not have to throw our hands up in frustration. We don't have to wage war on culture. We can engage culture with love, trusting that our inheritance is still secure, no matter what is going on in this world, because our inheritance is not in this world. It is to come. Other thoughts, knowing that our inheritance is to come, it means that we can be in this world. It means that we can lose things in this world. We can experience tragedy. We can experience loss and still praise God because ultimately our inheritance is not in this world. It's in the next. We have a heavenly inheritance as exiles. Peter wants us to know that. And also, we have... A protector. This is the second thing that we have as God's beloved children, exiles. Peter says in verse 5 that we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So just as Jesus, just as God is keeping our inheritance warm for us, you know, like, like, you were, like when you were in high school and you would go to practice or band practice or sports, whatever it was, and you would come home and mom has saved some food for you and kept it warm. Just as Jesus has, is keeping our inheritance warm for us, he is making sure we get to it. He's guarding us along the way. When Peter says salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, that might confuse us. Because we think, okay, there's another salvation. We've already been saved. What is Peter talking about? Well, he's talking about the second salvation. That glorious moment when Jesus comes back and gathers all of us who followed him into his fold. And he restores this world and brings in his kingdom. Peter is saying that God is protecting us until that day. God is guarding us until he brings us back in. Whether we physically die in this life or Jesus comes back, before that happens, God will guard us through faith. God is guiding us. Again, recall the image of that exile in your mind. I imagine an exile, I imagine a person that is alone and wandering. A person who has kind of lost their way because everything they've known, they've lost. We are not like that. Though we may be considered exiles in our culture, we go a different way. We have not been left alone to figure things out for ourselves. We have not been left alone to figure things out. When Jesus sent his disciples out to go and make disciples, he didn't say, all right, guys, it's been a great three years. Um, I've risen. I'm going to ascend pretty soon. Y'all, uh, go ahead. You're going to figure it out. I'll see you when I come again in 2000 or however long. No, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said in Matthew 28, he said, I am with you always to the end of the age. When Jesus had his last supper with his disciples, he did not say, all right, this has been a good meal. I'm about to die. I'm going to rise. I'm going to ascend to heaven. Have a good life, y'all. No, he didn't say that. He said, I will give you another helper. This is in John 14. I will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all things. God is guiding us in this life to our inheritance. God is protecting us from evil and sin. And this is so important for us to understand because in our culture is oftentimes our faith and culture collide. 
something that or the Bible says or that God teaches us collides with culture. And we feel that tension. And I don't know about you, but we, I know in my own life, I feel that tension to try, and, and it, there's this temptation we face to kind of bend God's word in order to adapt to culture, to accommodate what culture is saying is right. There's a lot of areas this happens in, everything from marriage to dating to racism, or to race, big thing now, um, to issues, uh, to issues involving sexuality, there's all kinds of things. We're tempted to bend God's word to accommodate culture. And all those issues are complex. I'm not trying to simplify them. What I'm just trying to point out is that we feel that tension. We feel that tension. We feel that temptation to bend God's word to accommodate culture. But we need to remember that God did not leave us to figure things out on our own. He did not leave us to just listen to culture for all of our life. No, he is with us. He is guarding us, protecting us, teaching us by faith, by his spirit. And let me be clear. We can learn a lot from culture. I'm not saying that we just hold up and read nothing but the Bible. I'm not saying that. But as we learn from culture and we listen to culture, we have to remember that ultimately our guide in this world is this book. It is the only book that was breathed out by God. And this is hard because we live in a time where if we want to know something or get an opinion about something, my goodness, we can get, oh, we get too many between Facebook and Google and everything. We need to remember that we should not exchange God's guidance for the guidance of culture. Inevitably, inevitably though, and Peter knows this, faith will collide with culture. And when it does, number three, we have a source of strength in the midst of trials. Because that will bring trials. When Peter talks about trials in this passage, he's talking specifically about hardships brought on because of our faith. He's not talking necessarily being sick or, um, uh, or, or, or some other kind of just more regular trials. He's talking specifically about when people don't like us for our faith and the, the, and the trials that we experience because of it. That is what he's talking about. But we have a source of strength in the midst of those trials. When our faith and culture clash and bump heads, inevitably we will sometimes find ourselves on the wrong side of the issue according to culture. Sometimes our faith will not lead us into trials. Sometimes culture will be concerned about something like poverty, and we as Christians can jump in and celebrate and work with non-Christians and be excited and, and, and champion the cause of helping those who are in poverty, feeding the hungry, and doing justice and all those great things. Our faith will lead us into trials, though, as well. In first. Verse 6, Peter says, in this you rejoice, meaning in your salvation, in your inheritance in the future, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter is addressing the fact that his audience is hurting. They are, for a little while, he says, enduring trials brought on by their faith. We don't, I don't know, we don't know exactly what they were experiencing, but it's likely they were being slandered, maybe killed, hurt, uh, treated as social outcasts in their, in their culture. As I was studying this passage, I was asking the question, why are these trials necessary? Peter says, 
though now for a little while, if necessary. Why would trials be if necessary? Well, because we have been born again. We are God's beloved children. We do not march to the beat of this world. We march to the beat of God. We do not follow the way of the world anymore. We follow the way of God. And the world, when the world goes one, sometimes the world and God go the same way. Sometimes the world goes one way and God goes the other. And that inevitably, when we go a different way, the world doesn't like it. And so that brings trials upon us. And these are the moments, church, when we really feel like we are exiles, when we feel like we stand out and we, when we don't want to stand out. David Platt, who is an author, pastor, one of the former presidents of the International Mission Board, he wrote a book called Countercultural, or Culture. I recommend it. It's really good. In the book, he writes this. He says, when we truly believe the gospel, we begin to realize that the gospel not only compels Christians to confront social issues in the culture around us, the gospel actually creates confrontation with the culture around and within us. And what Platt is saying is basically this. He's saying, look, at times, like, like when, when Jesus saves us and, and we experience that love, we take that love to the world. We become involved in social issues. We care about people in this world. We care about the issues the world is facing. And sometimes we're gonna align with, where culture, with what culture is concerned with, things like human trafficking, things like poverty or uh, water shortage in the world, uh, medicine, all those different kinds of things. What he also says is the gospel actually sometimes creates confrontation because sometimes the gospel speaks differently than what the world speaks. Sometimes our faith will not line up with what culture values. And our faith will create a confrontation between us. And this is when we will, between us and culture, and this is when we will feel like exiles more than ever. But the good news is this. Sorry, y'all, I'm still getting used to this TV. There we go. The good news is this. We have a source of strength in the midst of our trials. Peter continues in verse 7. We're getting near the end here. He says that, we have, that though we have been grieved by various trials, he says, this is with a purpose, he says, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may result glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith, according to Peter, will be proved genuine when we face trials. And this is so important for us to see. I'm a number nine on the Enneagram. Anyone in here taking the Enneagram? Anyone? Anyone? What are your numbers? Shout it out. Nine? Four? Okay. Nine? Okay. Um, so nines unite. I'm a number nine on the Enneagram. If you're unfamiliar with the Enneagram, it's kind of like the new personality test. There are nine different types of personalities. Um, the one thing about a number nine, uh, in short, that you need to know is that I do not like conflict. Uh, I do not like having peace. Or no, excuse me. I want peace. I do not like uh, being having tension between other people. Um, if, if there's a conflict, I want to resolve it quickly, and I want it to go away. And it's funny because... Um, Julie and I in our marriage will we'll have disagreements sometime and this, this kind of shows up in our marriage because I, I want to just like end the argument and we'll figure it out and it's done. She wants to talk things through more so I have to love her in that way and I have to work on that. Um, but I do not like conflict. I don't like tension. I want everyone to get along and I want everyone to feel at peace. 
And so me especially, but I think all of us, when our faith clashes with culture, I feel like something is wrong. I feel like there's a tension that needs to be resolved. I feel like I need to put it, put it away. I feel like I need to resolve the tension. The truth is, as Peter says, if our faith is clashing with culture, then we are likely doing something right. It is proving our faith genuine. If we are experiencing hate or slander or, you know, fill in the blank with whatever it is in our world, in our current time, because of our faith, we are likely doing something right. Now, we could be doing something wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is a blank statement. This is, I'm, not, I'm not giving a blanket statement that if you're receiving persecution, you're doing everything right. But if we are feeling tension and our faith is clashing with cultural values, our faith is being proved genuine, Peter says. We are doing something right. And this is so important for us because it shifts our perspective because now when we feel that pressure, we don't have to worry and think, oh no, I need to fix this. I need to get rid of this pressure. I need to figure out how the Bible says what culture is saying. No, we can actually rejoice because we know that our faith is being proved genuine. We are following God. And even though the world is going on its own way, we are following God. Notice how Peter finishes verse seven. He writes, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here again, Peter is looking ahead to the future, to that glorious moment when Jesus comes back, and he says, your faith will be proved genuine, and your faith will lead you to eternity. When we follow God in faith, we are led into eternity, to that moment when Jesus comes back and the only way that is left to follow is Jesus, when all the ways of the world that are evil and wrong go away. Faith is a path that we follow and it leads to eternity, to glory. In the book of Acts, there is a story that I love and I go back to it all the time. It speaks to me every time I read it. The Spirit has used it in mighty ways in my life. In the book of Acts, there's a man named Stephen, and Stephen was one of the early members of the church. Stephen is preaching, and he's doing these great wonders, and people are, people are kind of flocking to hear him teach, and he's amazing people with his teaching. But then he preaches a sermon that gets him in trouble. He preaches a sermon, and the people do not like what he says. He's preaching the gospel. They do not like it. And so they seize him, they take him outside of the city, and they kill him. They stone him to death, throw stones at him until he dies. He becomes the first martyr of the church. But here's what it says just before they took him away to kill him. This is Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56. It says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When the culture did not like what Stephen preached and it came after him, Stephen looked up. He looked to the heavens. He looked to God. He looked to his future, to his inheritance, to that time when he would be glorified with Jesus, have life, resurrection life with Jesus. He looked forward to that. And as he looked up and as he died, he was brought into eternity. Church, when your faith clashes with culture, do what Stephen did. Look to your future. Look to the promises of God. Look up. 
Now, what do we do with all this? We're almost done here. Just a couple, few little quick points of application here because there are so many cultural issues that I cannot touch on every one in one sermon. So I just want to give you a few little guidelines to think about. Number one, when your faith clashes with culture, when, notice I say when, when it happens, go to the Bible. If you need to know what you should think about a particular cultural, social issue, go to the Bible first. You can go other places, but go to the Bible first. And if you need help understanding the Bible, find someone who knows the Bible well and ask them. The Bible, God gave it to us to teach us, and it is good enough for all things that we face. Number two, when your faith clashes with culture, don't withdraw. I said earlier that, you know, focusing on our eternity can, can, can there's, there's a danger to that and that we can pull away from this world and kind of just hold up and say, well, I'll just go to heaven eventually and I'll be great. That's not what God wants us to do. The Bible teaches that we, what we do in this life matters. And if we have an inheritance, then we need to be aiming to bring people into that same inheritance. We want people to have that inheritance. We don't need to just sit back. We need to engage. So engage, don't withdraw. Talk with people. And this sounds like a weird application point, but I think in our day of social media, I love social media, by the way. I'm not trying to bash it. But one of the things that I think it has done, it has made it hard for us to talk with people who disagree with us. I know that I have experienced that, that in my life. So when your faith clashes with culture, with someone in your life, talk. Love a person, get to know them, understand them, and use that opportunity. Use your loving them when they disagree with you to present the gospel to them. Love those that think differently than us. Number three, when your faith clashes with culture, draw strength from one another. Cultural issues are big. <laughs> the, and our, our culture seems to be changing in what it uh, values every day. And how we respond is sometimes a complex thing. So have a friend that you can talk to about it, a Christian brother or sister, maybe a small group. Personally, I have a friend that I graduated college with. We call one another and Skype one another all the time. We're both ministers to talk about what's the best way to handle this situation. How do we handle this as Christians? And then last, because today is Father's Day, I want to speak to parents. Parents, disciple your children. There may have been a day when you could have come to church on Sunday, let your kids pray in school, and go to church camp in the summer, and that would have been enough to maintain, uh, keep them a Christian throughout their life. We don't live in that day and age anymore. If you are not discipling your children, I say this to teenagers, I say this to parents of students all the time, if you are not discipling your teenagers, having conversations with them about cultural issues, they are being discipled by Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and Snapchat and their friends in the locker room. That's where they're getting their outlooks on these things. So create an environment in your home where you can talk about these issues and how faith interacts with them. Do not leave it to the world to disciple your children. And then last, remember the hope that you have. We are now going to take communion together and as an act of remembering the hope that we have in Christ. Here at Fellowship, we believe that Jesus instituted this meal for Christians. So if you are here and a Christian, whether a member or not, you are invited to participate. Um, at home, you can be getting your elements ready. Everyone, you should have a cup. Um, if you notice, um, I know these might seem confusing. If you pull off the first little layer of film, you'll find your bread. If you pull off the second little layer, or the second layer, you will have your juice. In just a moment, we will take those. But first, let me just say that this meal is a reminder 
of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. His blood, his blood atoned for our sin, but it is also a reminder of the hope that we have. Jesus rose from the grave, and because of that, we have an inheritance greater than anything in this world. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You can take your elements now. God thank you for showing mercy to us thank you for saving us when we were your enemies Father I pray that as we leave this place as we leave our homes for those who are watching at home that we would love those who disagree with us like you have loved us Father I pray that we would find strength in the hope that you've given us. Lord, we see a lot of shifting sands around us. We see things that go against your word and it saddens us. Maybe it makes us angry. Father, I pray that we would find strength and that we would know, Lord, that our inheritance is secure. Lord, that you are bringing us there and that your plan will be carried out. Lord, give us strength in that knowledge. Father, I pray that we would be men and women who love you and who engage culture with your gospel. That we would not shy away from hard conversations, but that we would engage with people. I pray that we would be a people that are not just known by what we're against, but by what we're for. You, Jesus. I pray for everyone in this room and everyone viewing out there, Lord, help them as they do this. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.